From the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night. It is the 6th day of February 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is across the way. Happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Glad you could be with us. Uh, tonight we have with us former Nick Charles Oakley. He hopefully will be talking to us about his new book, The Last Enforcer. Then we'll welcome in author Chris Herring. We'll talk about his new book, Blood in the Garden. And that's about those great 1990s Knicks teams that we watched back then. So uh, we have a recurring theme here, and that is uh, New York Knickerbockers basketball. And hopefully in the 1990s, Charles Barkley will be... Uh, with us momentarily. As always, before I invite you to follow us on our social media. We're out there on Facebook, Sports Talk New York. Give us a look, then you can give us a like. Then you will fi- uh, find sports information, show information, so much more out there. So stop by, check it out. Also, we're on LinkedIn, a great uh, social media tool, business uh, value-added, I may add, business tool. And uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. Uh, you can follow me at B Donahue, WGBB. That is B D O N O H U E, WGBB. And if you miss a past show, don't worry because we have them all on our website. You can listen to them at your leisure. We're still waiting for Charles, Charles Oakley to check in with us tonight. But in the meantime, I'm going to take a look at the Baseball Hall of Fame voting that, that took place just about a week or so ago, making Big Poppy the uh, a first ballot Hall of Famer. I wonder how you folks feel about that. Uh, tested positive for steroids. So this this is how convoluted and how messed up the Baseball Hall of Fame is getting. You have a guy like Big Poppy waltz into the Hall of Fame, and you have, uh, not that I'm condoning their actions, Bonds and Clemens taking a back seat once again. Their 10th year on the ballot. They're no longer going to be on the Baseball Writers Association of America ballot. And uh, they'll have to wait for the Veterans Committee that meets later on during, uh, I believe it's during December. And I think we have Charles on the telephone. We good, Trevor? All right, well, my first guest, without further ado, he played 19 seasons in the NBA Started out his career in 85 with the Bulls. He became teammate, really a protector, close friend to Michael Jordan. Was selected to the NBA All-Rookie Team. Then, of course, he came to the Knicks. The starting lineup looked like this. Ewing, Charles, Mark Jackson, John Starks. And they made the playoffs in each of the ten seasons that Charles was there. Uh, he continued his career with the Raptors after he left the Knicks. Uh, he's given time and support 
to more than a 100 charities. And today he can often be found cooking for people, impoverished, underprivileged communities throughout his Charles Oakley Foundation. Look that up and check it, folks. His new book from Simon & Schuster is titled The Last Enforcer, Outrageous Stories from the Life and Times of One of the NBA's Fiercest Competitors. It's great to welcome to the show tonight Charles Oakley. Charles, good evening. Good evening. How you doing? Thanks for... Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to have you aboard, Charles. Now, I, I want to ask you right off the bat, when you were a kid growing up, did you have any favorite teams or any players that you followed? Well, basically, when I was growing up, uh, back in the days, uh, we didn't watch a lot of TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, games only came on, like, tape delayed and this and that. But now, as I got older, you know, Cleveland Cavaliers, you know, right there in my backyard, so I took right. a liking to them. Good. Uh, who did they have back then? Was it Austin Carr and they had Austin yeah. Carr? They had Big Old Smith. They had Nate Thurman, Jim Jones, Jim Jones, right. Russell, yeah. Bill Willoughby, Charles Furlow, Fussy Walker. Uh, they were stacked. Mike Mitchell. They were stacked. There's some great names. That's my old my old basketball cards coming to life there, Charles, with those names. I remember. Uh, yeah. I remember Jim Jones was here in New York with the Nets in in uh, right. way back. So yeah, some great names you brought up there. Now, uh, how did you come to write this book? How did you uh, come up with the idea? How did you start the project off? Well, you know, over the years playing the NBA and. Doing a lot of, you know, the beat writers and doing interviews and talking to people about this and that in the NBA, telling stories. And, you know, I decided, hey, let me just put this in a book of my own and let people know how I was brought up to my grandfather, my family. And, you know, life wasn't easy and this and that. And let me see the whole story of Charles like just the NBA and uh, what I do for charity. Exactly. Well, The Last Enforcer, it's called, folks. It's from Simon & Schuster. Let's get right into it and talk about some of the details that you do bring out in the book. It's it's a tremendous read, folks, and you really should ch- uh, check it on Amazon. Now, you knew that LeBron was going to Cleveland, was going to leave Florida. Yeah, leave Florida. Going to Miami. Right. And, going to Miami. Yeah. and go to Miami before he made... That famous announcement that was like uh, a coronation. He he had uh, everybody on uh, watching him on TV uh, saying where he was going. Now you you knew he was going to leave Cleveland and go to Miami, Charles. How did you know that? Well, you know I was you know close with his, his circle and uh, they from Cleveland. Right. I know how I'm from yeah. Cleveland, like twenty five miles apart. But you know I hang out with them guys, uh, do a few things with them, and you know. Um, I was with them uh, when they played that year, the first two games of the season. They started in Orlando at night, and then they went to Miami for a back-to-back, and we had went out to dinner that night. We talked about it in the book, uh, and he just said, uh, you know, was I going to Miami? I said, yeah. Said, oh, man, <laughs> I like that place. I'm probably even going there. Yeah. And, uh, so the next day, uh, they played the land though, they threw out, after the game, I drove out the next day, and I told, called Pat Riley and said, I need a couple of tickets to the game. He said, no problem. Left me two tickets, and, you know, the first half of the game, and then halftime, I met Riley, he had a suite. He always go to the halftime and, you know, relax for about 10 minutes for the second half. And I said, you know what, coach? Pat Riley, you know, I got you playing against tonight, so he might come and play with you next year. He said, who? I said, well, I the one guy wearing 23, the best player in the NBA. So, uh, you figured it out. And, uh, after that, 
you know, I went back and watched the second half of the game, and, uh, and the rest was history. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great story, Charles. Charles Oakley with us tonight. Uh, the, the Knicks back then, I remember them in the 90s. Right. Charles, great ball club. They were they were more of a working class type set of guys, though. N- right. Not not one specific hero, uh, right. a, a group of uh, outcasts or whatever you want to call them, put together. They gelled. Talk a little bit about mm-hmm. those Knicks ball clubs back in the nineties. Well, back in the nineties, you know, I, I think in the book I talked a lot about the eighties and nineties. Never fans on the end, but no, we were a hard grinding team, and um, you know, Pat was like go to guy and. You know, we fall every night, but, you know, like I said, we made 10 straight playoffs, and um, that shows you that some kind of character we had to have to make 10 straight playoffs and, and the one, you know, in New York. And, sure. You know, and playing back then, it was tough. So uh, we just didn't have enough gas, and, you know, like I said, if you travel 100 miles, you only got 80 miles of gas, you're going to run out sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I remember that series, Charles, against Houston. I was down in Dallas right. at the time. And and yeah. that that was the the hour. That was the hour to take take what was rightfully ours. Uh, Jordan was out at that time, and it was it right. was Patrick and Hakeem. How about that series against the Rockets? Oh man, I talk about it in the book. That's an heartbreaking series. Yeah. Um, you know they always say you know the best team, uh, the best player always win at the end of the day, and I think that um, Hakeem got the best of us. Um, that was Patrick matchup, and then. He didn't have a good series, and, and Patrick was our horse, and then we were riding back, and uh, we went as long as he could go, we went, but like I say, we went 3-2, we made the Houston, we lost both, but, you know, it, it was a great series, but uh, I'm just, I'm just mad, mad we lost, and the fans, we could have had a wing, and, you know, I love New York fans, they do, they been, they've been with me in my whole career, not just in New York, after Toronto, wherever, now into this day of life, so... I mean, we let the fans down. Uh, it, it, it was a hard-fought series, Charles. And yeah. you guys, you guys, we could tell the fans know you played your heart out, and that that, that was a real tough one, though. One one incident I want to talk about, and uh, Chris Herring, the gentleman on after me, mentions it in his book, and it was the. Uh, with PJ down in Miami. Oh, well, that, that was an uh, unbelievable day. Uh, down, I think you were down in uh, Miami and PJ Brown, right? W- tell us wh- how that unfolded. Oh, oh, yeah. And the Charlie Ward thing. Yeah, oh, um, yeah. He just took him and uh, flipped him over, poor Charlie. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened. And, you know, but that was a crazy incident. Uh, you know, we talked about this, how we fought with Miami in the city, we fought with Indiana in the city, we talked, we, we fought with Chicago, but. You know, um, yeah, that was a, that was a crazy thing, but you know what? We didn't hold our hand. We came back, uh, uh, you know, a couple guys got suspended, but we beat them in that series, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what, that's what our toughest was. We, we didn't have something like that sidetracker, but we always, you know, fought together and played together. So it, it was, it was great to play against the Heat, uh, especially they were like the same type of team, you know, in mirror areas, both teams. So uh-huh. basically we knew what they were going to do. They knew what we were going to do, but. The score might have been 76 to 75, 82 81, but it was a great game. There always was at least one guy, Charles, as a fan, I can say, on, on the other teams that, that was hated. 
<laughs> I'll put it bluntly, out and out hated. One of them was Reggie Miller. The other right. one, I, I can't, who am I thinking of? Uh, oh, Tim Hardaway. I hated that Tim guy. Hardaway. Oh, man. You, yeah, they they always bad. kill you. They'll turn yeah. around and kill you, those friggin' guys. Well, you know, you look back over everything, you know, I talk in the book about how we played, like I said, the Pacers and the Miami Heat. Um, you know, we, we, hey, like that game against Reggie hit like eight points and nine seconds. That was, that was a heartbreaker. Oh, and like I said, Miami, one time Tim, Tim Holloway, you know, he was a scorer. He hit big shots. But, uh, but, you know, taking that off both teams, they all fought, fought hard, played clean, and not too much, you know, not too much crazy stuff happened in the series, you know, but, you know, it was real intensive series. Oh, yeah, and to this day, you bring up a name like Rick Smith, and, oh, man, everybody's like, oh, it's just tr tremendous dislike. Let's just put it that way, Charles. Now, now, getting back uh, to some points in the book, you knew George Floyd. You, you had a friendship with George. Well, yes, I met him, you know, Stephen Jackson, I uh, played in Charlotte, yeah. uh, coached him, I coached him in the Big Three, and we talked about him in the book, yeah, it was I think he changed the world or what happened, but, you know, you don't know how to get any life for but, you know, he took, he took one for us, you know, for us as the country. And, you know, we, a lot of things have happened since then. Um, things trying to change in life. Uh, you know, his family, uh, you know, Stephen Jackson came in and, and stepped in like a brother should have and took control to make sure the family was okay and got him in the right direction and, uh, you know, when stuff happens like that, we need to come together. We shouldn't wait for stuff to, like that to happen to come together. But, you know, um, on all sides, you know, green, yellow, blue, race, color, whatever, everybody was, mm -hmm. you know, all in all and just, you know, want to see a change. Exactly. That's a, that's true, Charles. And you yourself, you mentioned in the book, have been a victim of uh, the ugly face of racism. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's... Uh, it's something in life that I think we'll never go away, but we can try to make it better. Uh, it just, what it is, it's going to be like the corona. I don't know why it happened. They don't know why it happened, but it might be here to stay too. But I think that, uh, growing up in the South, it was, it was bad. You know, my grandfather, you know, raised me for a while and I've uh, seen a lot he had to go through to be a man. And the, and I went down to Memphis, down to, when, um, Dr. Martin King got shot on a tour and seeing so much, you know, mm -hmm. just negativity in life and it, it just see how, how, how hard it was to grow from the 50s and the 60s to now. It just, you know, so I take my hand off to all the people who gave it life for me to be living to this day. Charles Oakley with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, how is your relationship, Charles, uh, today with James Dolan? Uh, you know, in the book we talk about that. It's just, right. it's just a bad scene in life. Like we were just talking about stuff happened. But I would try to just take over stuff. Don't let people chance to grow in life. So that's what he doing. He just using his, what he got. He got some, he got some outlets in different areas. And the way he done in the garden, that was bad, bad for the fans. For people. Yeah, he, he sensed. He, he, he had to run in. We we try to make changes. He's still doing stuff. He threw kids out. He threw people out. Yeah. He just he just he just ruled. That's that's his bullying. And the NBA have done nothing about that. And like you see what's going on in the NFL. That you know, 
people who trying to do the right way, winning it and still getting fired because I don't know. It's just it's, it's just a some things just seem like they're never gonna change, but we just see we always say we got hope and hope it changes because sooner or later gonna look in the mirror and see that it's not right. True, true, Charles. And as Jesse Jackson said, keep hope alive. We can all hope for that to come come to fruition. Now, Patrick Ewing, we'll get back to Patrick now. A lot of people blame Patrick for the Knicks not winning the championship during those those, uh, those times in the 90s. But he, he like, like you say, he brought you guys on his back and took took you as far as you could go. We just couldn't get over that hump, though. Why do you think people blame Patrick? I mean, I think that, I mean, there's both I talk about Patrick, uh, maybe didn't do a lot of things to, you know, like when you get in the playoff, and especially like the Super Bowl next week, it comes down to the guy, you know, we got the big contract, the guy who been all star for 10, 12 year dream team. This guy's, I mean, he probably play, uh, playing against uh, Matt Stafford and Joe Burrow. He's a younger guy, but anyway, I think Joe Burrow showed you in college what type of guy he was. And everybody said he's a superstar, but can you prove you're a superstar? So, uh, yeah, you can get go to all star game and do all that. They got to pick somebody, and you know, Patrick got a lot of talent, did a lot of things. I just think sometimes we didn't we didn't adjust against certain teams. We we didn't play team like we should have. And I think that uh, sometimes you play, and you have to play different against certain, you know, especially when you play the Bulls or a coach like Bill Jackson and team like Bulls, the athletic team that's about to get in transition. Sometimes you got to make the second, you got to make the extra pass. And we and against the Bulls, you had to make the extra pass. And uh, we didn't do that. We just kept trying to force shots up, and they get run out. We didn't get back because we, you know, we had to pass like playing against Houston. We had to pass on the double team because the biggest shot in the whole. Houston thing was a king got double team. He passed the ball to uh, Sam Cosell, and and we never passed on the double team. So I mean, you didn't trust us in the moment that we need that we need you know uh, open shot or make a bucket. Mm-hmm. Exactly right, Charles. Charles Oakley is with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now you're a buddy of, of Mike Tyson, so, so much yeah. so that you, you visited Mike in jail. He, he's yeah. he's really. Uh, come a long way from his yeah. problems early on. Talk a little bit about Mike. Well, Mike, uh, you know, I met Mike in Cleveland. I went to maybe, you know, he, how many, maybe he had 30 fights. I probably made the 20. I mean, you know, I was from Cleveland. Don King was from, you know, uh, not too far outside of Cleveland. Mike moved to Cleveland for about at least five to eight years. And we, we grew a, a relationship. And uh, to the day, uh, we had a relationship. What happened to him was, you know, sad. It happened, but we don't know what happened, but when you go to jail, you got, you got to man up and just do your time and come home and, and change your life. And uh, he got out, you know, had a chance to fight again and, you know, ups and downs. But right now he's back on top of his, his game. Uh, you know, we all have problems in life, but, uh, you know, Mike really didn't change and he had a new space and in life he rebuilt himself in a great way. He rebuilt his life, exactly, Charles. Now, how about the time, Charles, that you gave the boot to the to the worm uh, at a at a restaurant <laughs> down in South? Oh South yeah, that, that's crazy. Yeah, what, what happened? So in the book, you know, we was in South Beach. We both did appearance together at the Gansevoir on, on Collins. Yeah, and um, you know, started at two, in about four. 
I, right then we were talking, and he asked me where I was going later on. I said, I'm going to my steakhouse. I on first in Washington. He said, all right, I'll meet you about 7.38. So, you know, a couple hours will pass, and I'm on my way to the steakhouse. I stopped at Prime 112, Miles, you know, probably the best steak, one of the best steakhouses in Florida. Uh-huh. So I knew the owner. So I stopped in there. I was talking to him. And um, about 7.15, and I get a call from my restaurant, and they said, well, Dennis Robin in here, you can't believe what he's doing. Get here right away. <laughs> so I tell Miles about 7.30 then, so I leave there and walk two blocks. So I don't go in right away. I look in the window, Dennis Robin in there eating other people's plates. So I go in there and make Uh-oh. a beat straight to him, grab him by his neck, and just took him out and threw him out. I said, don't never come around me again. Yeah. Oh, man, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. What, yeah, what an experience! Yeah. Now, well, you know, these people looking for attention. Right? I mean, it's okay to go around and greet yourself, but don't eat up people's plates. I mean, I'm looking at in a minute or so, even at two or three tables, so I had to go in there stop it. Yeah, and what uh, what patron of of a restaurant is going to stand up to Dennis Rodman acting crazy in their face? You know that. Well, yeah, well, everybody probably know who it was, but some people when you come out with a family stuff. I mean, and establish, you want to have a nice, relaxing time. I mean, it, it ain't your time, Dennis Robin. It's not a paid appearance, so <laughs> say hello or sit in the bar, have your drink or some wine or advertise. I mean, I don't know, but, you know, a lot of guys look for so much. They look for attention. I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't play the game that way. I didn't no. play the game for the love and for the fans. What changes in the game, Charles, have taken place since, since you left uh, the NBA? Uh, since I left the NBA, I talk about this in the book. It's just more global. Uh, yeah. You know, more three pointers. Uh, they less, less, less. I think conversation for us, like, conversation for us, how the guys play and, you know, like, they just don't play, seem like the same way. They put the heart and soul in it. They get the check and, you know, um, I don't know. I hate to talk about how these guys play, but they always say this is daytime. And let them play their way. So I just try to let them have it. It's just hard to watch to me, you know, because, you know, you see so many threes and you see air balls and turnovers. Like, it's not important. That was the one. We play turnovers, free throws, and knowing what to do on the court was so important. But it seemed like it's less important now. Is there any guy that you played against, Charles, that you did not want to go up against, that, that really uh... – Maybe intimidated you a bit. I I bet you there's no one. But uh, answer that. What well, do you think? In this book, you know, they said Shaq, but I like I like them big or small. It don't matter. If you if you're in front of me, I want to play against you. Uh, I like that challenge, and that's what makes me tougher every night. And know that hey, I didn't ever have a you know off night because you know when you play, you try to play the same way that your team needs you to play. Some guys, well, we ain't playing a tough team. I can take it now. I don't take nothing for granted. Right, exactly right. That's Charles Oakley, ladies and gentlemen. He played the game the right way. He played tough. He played the big man on, on the other team. And, uh, as I said, his book, folks, check it out. It's called The Last Enforcer. Outrageous stories from the life and times of one of the NBA's fiercest competitors that's out right now. It's, uh, on your shelf. At your, at your favorite bookstore, it's on Amazon. Charles Oakley, it's been a pleasure, and I thank you for giving up some of your Sunday night to be with us. Thank you anytime. I love the city, so I do anything that people in New York, um, try to stay can hear me in the consistency I've been over my career, and this book will tell you the same thing, the growth that left of the light. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Charles, you take care, and we'll talk to you down the road. Okay.
Thanks again. That's Charles Bar- Charles Oakley. I knew I was going to say that sooner or later, folks. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll talk with author Chris Herring about his book on the Knicks of the 1990s. Uh, it's called Blood in the Garden, and we're going to speak with Chris about that momentarily. Stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. All right, ladies and gents, and children of all ages, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Just want to mention a little bit about the lockout of major league players by the major league owners. It still continues. Uh, it really shows no signs of breaking the impasse. The request for a mediator was turned down by the Players Association. I think in this situation that both sides really picture themselves as the white knight, righteous in their own cause. And uh, this is going to make things drag on even more, folks. Spring training now is in jeopardy. The pitchers and catchers were due to report, I believe, in about a week and a half. Doesn't look like that's going to happen. It's not a good situation, folks. So uh, I I would be uh, worried as a baseball fan, and, and I truly am about this situation. Fortunately, you have hockey, basketball, and now the Olympic Games. Uh, we watched the great USA women's hockey team uh, shut out Switzerland this morning, live uh, from Beijing. Very entertaining, the women's hockey team. And uh, I believe they go up against Canada the next uh, one night this week. Look it up at 11 p.m. live from Beijing. So check that out. Well, uh, as always... We have what we bring you, sports talk and sports memories, and we'll continue with that right now. Our next guest, he is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He previously spent five years covering the NBA for ESPN and 538. Prior to that, he was at the Wall Street Journal where he covered the Knicks. He lives in Chicago, teaches at Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism in his spare time. On Twitter, you can follow him and his exploits his name is Chris Herring. It's at Herring underscore. Uh, what would you call that, Trevor? I can't think of the name. I'll call it underscore NBA. Well, either way, it's great to welcome to the show tonight Chris Herring. Chris, good evening. Good evening, Bill. How are you? Just doing fine, doing fine. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you aboard. One thing I want to ask you right off the bat, Chris, are you a Nick fan? No, no. Okay. I, um, as you said, I've covered the league for about 10 years, and I think, I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think a lot of us kind of become almost agnostic to it because you're so close to it, and you, you get to know these guys on a personal level, so you 
he lose kind of whatever whatever fandom's built in. But but no, I'm not. Interesting point. Okay, we just spoke to the Yoke Man uh, previous to you. Uh, telling us about his role and successes in the, those Knicks of the 90s. Talk a little bit about Charles Oakley, the, the gentleman we just spoke to. He, he is, matter of fact, uh, as you, you probably know, has a new book out called The Last Enforcer. How about the Oak Man? Sure. I mean, it's, it's been interesting to have my book come out and then have this come out two weeks later. Uh, it was something we were aware of. It works good. Uh, probably. Probably a year and a half ago. It was just interesting timing because, you know, it's, it's weird that we've gone 30 years without any, you know, books on the Knicks really of that era. Um, and so my publisher was like, well, do we want to be ahead of it? Do we want to come right behind it? Um, but either way, no, I mean, it's been interesting. It's been kind of sad, I think, a little bit to see just kind of what's happened with him and the organization. And I think to um, a lesser extent, him and, and the fan base, because I think a lot of people – viewed this guy kind of as a hero, and I, I think some still do, uh, just as, you know, kind of the epitome of what those Knicks teams were, extremely physical, extremely tough. Um, they weren't going to take mess from anybody, but I think it's been difficult for a lot of fans to kind of stomach the idea of his, his gripes with Patrick Ewing, which have just kind of intensified over the last few years, I think, as a result of uh, the run-in that, that Oakley had at the Garden back in, what was it, 2017. And, mm-hmm. and I think his frustration with the fact that Patrick really hasn't vocally backed him, um, you know, as maybe the most visible figure from those years. But uh, but obviously he got a lot of that across in the book. He's gotten a lot of that across through his interviews. And, um, you know, and I think that that's kind of his cross to bear. And, and so I understand, I guess I understand where he's coming from with that, but it seems like he's intensified that mostly from that situation, regardless of what leadership issues he felt like Patrick had during those years. Very true, Chris, very true. Now, you spoke to many sources for this book, and uh, that, that's easy to see through uh, the, the information, the, the in-depth information that you have compiled in this book. Some of the people, folks, that I'll just mention offhand, uh, John Stark's, coach with the Cedar Rapids Silver Bullets. His name is George Whitaker. And, of course, a guy that we did not mention with Charles Oakley uh, in the previous segment but deserves airtime certainly is Anthony Mason. Now, he he went to Tennessee State. You spoke to his teammate there. Give us a little insight, Chris, into how you developed this list of, of sources to speak to for your book. Well, I think it, it gets really easy to look at a book and say, did you talk to, did you get Pat Riley? Did you get Charles Oakley? Did you get Patrick Ewing? Mm-hmm. And of course, as an author, you're trying to get to every single person you can. Right. Um, but I almost think in some ways, the people that have been in the public eye for the longest, uh, Ewing, Riley, Oakley, Starks, those people have been asked pretty much, you know, the, the, the questions they've been asked over the years have run the gamut. Because they're still in the public <laughs> to some extent. Oak has come out with a book. John Starks has been tied to the Knicks for years now as right. kind of an alumni relations person. Patrick Ewing coaches Georgetown. Charles, so, you know, Pat Riley is still overseeing the Heat at this point, you know, has the team in first place. So they're not hard to find. They're, they're in front of cameras a lot anyway. It's rare that they're asked anything they haven't been asked already. Um, and if they have said something explosive, it, it, it's in the media immediately. So I think in some ways you actually learn a lot of things about kind of their origin stories, and I think even some of those things behind the scenes, by talking to their lesser teammates, I think by talking to members of their family, by talking to their friends, by talking to the people that coached them before they were in the NBA, 
their roommates, the people that they kind of hung out and ran with, um, you know, as children uh, that they grew up with and Schenectady. In Pat Riley's case, I spent almost a week out there a couple of years ago hanging out with people that he came up with and spending time at the house that he grew up in. So I, I wanted to spend a lot of time doing that. Obviously, I spent time talking to the people near the top of the organization as well, but you ask better and more informed questions by spending a lot of time talking to secretaries and community outreach people and, you know, and, and the sorts of people I was mentioning before who've never been interviewed but worked for the Knicks for 10, 15 years. They have stories, too. You know, I was getting stories about Jeff Van Gundy babysitting people's children, basically, during the day at a time where he was really disillusioned with his job and his role with the Knicks before he was kept on as an assistant coach. And, and it just shows you a soft side of him that I don't think would ever be out there otherwise. So I, I thought that was really valuable to be able to talk to, I would say, 75, 100 people of that sort. Right. It certainly fills in the cracks, so to speak, Chris, of uh, missing information that we come to know now through your book. Now, Michael Cooper called uh, Pat Riley Coach Hitler which is, is uh, an extreme description for somebody. Why, why would he call uh, Riley Coach Hitler? Uh, well, yeah, I, I certainly won't bless that, you know, that, yeah. that idea of that. I think that's maybe extreme. But what I will say is, you know, I think the book, um, my version of the book obviously is, is you know, I, it's taking a lot of very, very critical um, analyses of, of Pat and the way that he coached his teams. I think he burns out, you know, somewhat quickly at times. I think even quicker in New York because they didn't manage to win the whole thing. Um, but I mean, everybody described him as someone that was kind of a maniac as far as the sorts of drills they ran. As, as far as the idea that they teams very rarely ran offensive drills in practice. One scout was telling me he stopped coming to Knicks practices. Um, because there was, you know, it'd be two and a half, three hours of defensive drills, basically. And he figured there's no point after a while. So wore down the players. And I think more than anything, it was a psychological sort of thing that was kind of the, the scary aspect of it for the players was that, you know, the messaging he was using sounded militaristic. And I think it was in a lot of cases. It was the idea of showing them footage of, you know, bighorn rams headbutting each other. Um, and violent car crashes before a game against the Blazers. It was him dunking his head in a ice cooler in the locker room for three and a half minutes and forcing a coach to pull him out so that Riley could gasp for air, you know, really desperately, and then look at his players in the eye and say, now that's how badly you should want to win, as badly as I needed that breath. Um, it was him sliding into the locker room wearing baseball spikes right before a game and telling his players that that was how he wanted them to go about playing was that you know essentially go in with your spikes high the way a player would go into second base trying to break up a double play and if you hurt someone and you happen to hurt someone by playing aggressively then so be it worry about that later um this was the the type of style that he had and i think you know it's something to be said for the fact that that was the, the way he felt the knicks had the best shot of winning with a roster that was not as talented as what chicago had during those years Right. So, um, but more I'm than sorry, anything, I, I think it was just the way that he, he operated. And I think that wears thin after a while when you don't manage to win. And I think that even for Riley, it, it, it's just such an aggressive style that I don't think you can do that, you know, year in, year out for a really long time, certainly without winning a championship. And I think the Lakers got tired of it, too, even though they did win four championships with him. 
I think maybe, Chris, and correct me if, if I'm wrong or you have uh, a bone to pick with the statement that Pat Riley knew he had a working-class bunch uh, of players, sort of like a, a hard-hat bunch, and wanted them to play very aggressively because he knew he didn't have the Showtime Lakers here. He had Patrick Ewing and maybe a supporting cast of uh, castaways or castoffs, uh, so to speak. Do you agree with that? Uh, I think you're spot on. I, I think you're spot on. I think he came in on day one, literally his first day of practicing with the Knicks or, you know, having them in practice with training camp and told them, look, I think the, the Pistons, the bad boys Pistons strategy against the Bulls and Michael Jordan works. I just think that maybe they're a little bit too old to carry it out anymore. They had obviously won two championships with that style, but the Pistons had more offense than those Knicks did. You know, they had Joe Dumars. They had, you know, Benny Microwave Johnson off mm-hmm. the bench. Uh, so they had more offense than those Knicks did. And Patrick, like you said, was really the only star player they had year in, year out. John Starks was their second option, and he was a guy that was undrafted. Right. Um, you know, yeah. Charles Oakley might have been their third best player, and he was a guy that, um, you know, was known more for his physicality, as, as his book calls, kind of the last enforcer. He was a guy that was kind of there for intimidation. And, you know, he was a good rebounder and a good instinctual defender, but he wasn't athletic. Um, and he wasn't an offensive force that was going to carry you for stretches in a game. So it was a really unusual team, and Pat Riley basically said, we need to have this sort of intimidation factor and this sort of physicality to give ourselves a better chance. And it was, it eventually was something that kind of put the Knicks at odds with the league itself, not the other teams, maybe the other teams, but I think more than anything, the league. The league officials, David Stern, the people that worked directly under him, that then sought to change the rules around the way the game would be legislated, through physicality, they didn't want physicality to become an equalizer as far as talent and athleticism and skill were concerned. Um, some people will say that was protecting the Bulls specifically. Um, I tweeted out a clip yesterday of Phil Jackson complaining before a game that they were playing against the Knicks on NBC, and Phil basically was saying, I have to complain. I have to voice this stuff through the media because otherwise stuff doesn't get called and we just get mauled and we can't play that style of game. No. And then in response to that comment, Pat Riley said, well, he wants it to be more of a ballet. If they want to be ballerinas, then be ballerinas. So Pat Riley was literally trying to make it physical because he recognized that it could level the playing field. The league did not want that. They did not want Michael Jordan to get hurt. Um, And so, you know, the league implemented several rules that I think were aimed pretty directly at the Knicks during those years. And um, it did fundamentally change the way the game was played. I think it's a big part of why the game now looks the way it does now that we have so much skill because the league wanted it to move in that direction. Very interesting uh, remarks and very interesting facts brought out in Chris Herring's book, Blood in the Garden. And I, I want to talk about a specific incident, and I, I remember this uh, succinctly. It's uh, in Miami. P.J. Brown was the, the instigator, and or or he was, a, you could call him an innocent bystander, but he took matters into his own hands. And if you get a chance, folks, look up the clip. Uh, I, I don't know what you'd call it, Chris, but talk a little bit about that incident of which I speak. Sure. Well, you're, you're referring to 1997, mm-hmm. uh, the first-round series between the Knicks and Heat. Actually, I take that back. I think it was maybe a second-round series that they were playing. Uh, this would have been for the conference semifinals. Uh-huh. The Knicks are up 3-1 to one against the Miami Heat. This is uh, this is the first full year that uh, Pat Riley has been in Miami. 
and is, is coaching against the Knicks in the playoffs. Um, and the Knicks are in the driver's seat to win the series. It's 3-1. It's about to be 3-2, last two minutes of the game where the Knicks are down by 15. And Tim Hardaway Jr. is at the, or Tim Hardaway Sr. is at the free throw line shooting. And as his free throw is going up, Charlie Ward, you know, probably best known for the Heisman Trophy that he won in college, right. um, is trying to box out, and he goes relatively low in trying to box out, and he kind of goes towards the legs of P.J. Brown, who was probably a good eight or nine inches taller than Charlie Ward. P.J. Brown takes issue with it, um, and in retaliating, he basically suplexes Charlie Ward. Yeah. Um, as a result of that, the Knicks, because of where this happens on the court, the Knicks come pouring off their bench, um, you know, and it, it's probably anywhere between the five guys that were already on the court for the Knicks, uh, the other four, and then you probably had another four or five pour off the bench for them. Uh, and those people included Larry Johnson, John Starks, Allen Houston, and, you know, I think most importantly, Patrick Ewing took a few steps off the bench as well, all this comes into play, and it all matters because the league had already implemented rules pretty much, again, directly as a result of the Knicks and what they'd been involved in the years before. They'd implemented rules that you were not allowed to leave the bench during altercations. And because this happened on the opposite end of the floor from the, the Miami Heat, none of their players were involved in the altercation coming down to the other end of the floor. So as a result of all that, regardless of whose fault you felt like it was, Later, I got details that P.J. Brown specifically had told a teammate, if anything happens tonight, if anybody from the Knicks tries me at all, I'm going to go off. Um, Ike Austin told me that, a member of the Heat team from those years. Um, but anyway, the Knicks ended up getting five players suspended as a result of that. Of the six that were suspended for the altercation as a whole, only P.J. Brown got suspended from the Heat because the Heat were on the other side of the floor. It, it was so many suspensions that they had to split the suspensions basically in half. They had to suspend three players for one game for the rest of the series and two players for the other because the Knicks wouldn't have had enough guys available if they suspended them all on the same night. Um, and so it, you know, they ended up taking out Patrick for a key game in game six. He had to wait until game seven. And the result ended up being that the Knicks lost the series that they had initially been up 3-1 in a year where they felt like they had a very good chance to beat Chicago, they finally gotten some offense to go with all the defense they had with Larry Johnson and Allen Houston. They played the Bulls evenly that year and won two out of their four games with the Bulls. The two games they lost to them, I think they lost by a combined three points. So it might have been their real last shot to really take down the Jordan-era Bulls. Um, and they looked back on that moment and felt like the league had it out for them, basically. It sounds silly. But, you know, the Knicks felt like for years the league was trying to get away from the idea that they had done something to try to help the Knicks get Patrick Ewing and, and the perception that they had been too cozy with the Knicks and, and, and maybe Ewing ending up there not really by happenstance but through something being fixed. And so they kind of, you know, the, the Knicks felt like they were always trying to run away from that perception, that the league was always trying to run away from that perception, and they felt like they really had it taken out on them in that in that moment. Chris Herring with us tonight, uh, his book, Blood in the Garden, we are discussing. Do you feel in that, in in that instance, Chris, that maybe they were baited, that R Riley uh, told his guys, whatever you do, don't leave the bench? And uh, that was, as you say, really the downfall of the Knicks was, was that incident. Do, do you think they were baited into that? 
Well, I mean, depending on who you talk to, some people will tell you that they felt like there was something to that. Yeah. Um, again, Ike Austin was the one that told me that P.J. Brown had said something to him during the shoot-around that morning, and specifically what he remembered. Riley was a master at, at messaging. Again, you know, sometimes I think to the point where it got a little bit crazy and a little bit maniacal, but he particularly would pull out media clips and use things that would, you know, if, if the media was suggesting that the series was over, which you probably did have some people doing since the Knicks were up 3-1 and the Knicks looked like the more physical, dominant team in the series, Riley was utilizing messaging through the media to be able to kind of get under his player's skin, and he kept using the words fight and scrap and claw, and he kept repeating them over the course of that shoot-around, basically asking his guys, I don't think you're up to the task, and the media certainly doesn't think you're up to the task. You guys have to fight if you want to be serious about winning this thing. And that was at the moment where, you know, Pat turned around and walked off, and P.J. Brown said to no one in particular, you know, if anybody tries me from the other side tonight, I'm just going to go off. I've had him. And so that was what Ike Austin recalled, and I do think Pat Riley probably played into that. Did he say anything specifically about starting a fight? No, I don't think he had to. I just think he was kind of a master at messaging, and, and you know, and it played out that way. Um, and, and to be fair to Pat, I was told by plenty of people from the Heat side, too, if something like that had happened on the other end of the floor, uh, on the Heat side of the floor, they would have been just as quick to hop off their bench. I think it was something that happened really on the right side of the floor to really advantage a team like Miami because the Knicks were only 15 or 20 feet from where the altercation started. So, um, But, yeah, that was one that certainly changed the course of that season for the Knicks because they probably would have won the series. Google that, folks. You, you'll be entertained at the very least. It's a, it's a, a great altercation, and you have Jeff Van Gundy holding onto the leg of Alonzo Mourning. And uh, j- just check it, folks. It's, it's, it'll be worth your while. Now, Patrick, as, as we discussed, Chris, w- was the guy to, to put them on his back and take them as far as he could. Now, what about Patrick against some of the big men of his time? How, do, how does he rank? How does he rank with, with Mourning, with uh, Dikembe, with uh, the Admiral? Talk a little bit about Patrick uh, against these guys. Yeah, well, I think that that was part of the challenge is that he was fantastic. I think you could make, I think, a relatively easy argument that he was a better center than Alonzo Mourning. Um, the Knicks beat the Heat three out of four times in, in a four-year span. They played head-to-head, by the way, from 90, I believe it was 97 to 2000. They played every year in the postseason, Riley against Van Gundy. And the Knicks won three of the four. The one they did not win was the one we were just talking about where they had five guys suspended in the last two games of the series. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they outplayed Miami in those series, even though they were extremely even. Every one of the series went the distance. Um, I think you could argue that Patrick was was the better player um, than Alonzo Mourning, despite being older than he was. Um, I don't think there's any question, you know, as as great as Dikembe was on defense, there's no question that he was better than him. Um, but I think the challenge is, you know, Patrick, you would easily argue, I think, is probably a top five, top six center of all time. But I think two guys that you would have to argue had his number or were better than he was, at least at times during that era, were the two guys that the Knicks ended up matching up against in the finals uh, when the Knicks made their finals run. Hakeem. Certainly Hakeem Olajuwon, yeah. uh, who vastly, vastly outplayed Patrick, and I think that was part of the reason they lost. 
was that John Starks essentially had to become a number one option in 1994. If you look at Patrick's numbers, you, you, you kind of squint a little bit and you kind of uh, grit your teeth because you're like, wow, did he really have five games in the series where he shot under 40% mm-hmm. against Hakeem? But I'm pretty yeah. sure he did. Um, he, he did okay defensively. I think he, at the time, he set a record for blocks in a series, uh, in an in NBA final series against the Lajuan. So he was doing well in some regards, but he just was not efficient in that series. It forced John Starks to shoot way more than you would really want him to. Um, and obviously that came to really um, eat away at the team in Game 7 when he shot 2 for 18 um, and, and 0 for 11 from 3 because he was kind of forced into a role where he was the number one option. So it was kind of incredible that they even had a shot to win the series to begin with. But um, I don't think he you know, was a better player than Hakeem. And then when you got to 99, it was not a matter of Patrick not matching up well against David Robinson. But I think more than anything, it was that David Robinson had had a year basically where the, the team, and this is interesting, because Patrick shattered his wrist in 97, and the Knicks gave some thought, not very long, but some brief thought to the idea of maybe tanking that year because, you know, Patrick was obviously their best player, and he shattered his wrist, was going to miss the whole regular season. Um, the Knicks didn't give real thought to tanking because they had such an expensive roster. Meanwhile, San Antonio, when, when David Robinson had an, an injury that kept him out for basically an entire season, they did tank, and then they brought in some, they were able to get Tim Duncan. And so in 99, the Knicks were playing against Twin Towers. Um, Patrick Ewing injures his Achilles, and so he can't play in that series. So the Knicks were really, really at a huge disadvantage by not having him in a series where they've got to play against two seven-footers that are going to be Hall of Famers. So, mm-hmm. But even when he played against David Robinson head-to-head during that era, uh, David generally outplayed him a little bit. So I would say that David Robinson had a little bit of an advantage on him too, and obviously he ends up with a ring while Patrick does not. The book uh, Blood in the Garden, folks, by Chris Herring, uh, the flagrant history of the New York Knicks is a very interesting word used right there. Now, your book, Chris, describes the game that uh, it's so physical that fans today, and it is a different generation than it was for uh, for me back then in the 90s, people wouldn't even recognize that style of play today. Not at all. I mean, I... I'm someone that really wasn't of age to have mm-hmm. watched those games as a kid. Um, I was four when the Knicks started Pat Riley in 1991. Um, but, you know, people have asked me, like, which do you prefer more? And I'm like, I, I don't have to hesitate much to say that a version of today's game is better. Um, the only thing I would say is that I do think there could be a little bit more physicality in today's game, you know, without me kind of rolling my eyes at it. Um, the thing I miss most that the 90s were just flush with were, were rivalries. Um, the Knicks had three massive ones between the Bulls, the Pacers, and right. then Pat Riley goes yeah. to Miami, and they've got the one with the Heat. Mm-hmm. You don't, I mean, I think it shows on a day like Christmas now, where we looked at all the Christmas games. The league is desperate to have a rivalry like any of the ones the Knicks had during those years. I mean, they had a game this, this Christmas against the Hawks, and it was rooted completely in what we saw in the postseason last year where the, the Knicks played the Hawks in the playoffs. Trey Young has all the interplay with the Madison Square Garden crowd. And then guess what? Trey Young has COVID and can't play. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, there, there really isn't much of a rivalry. It's literally just Trey Young. And it was a series that wasn't all that close last year. Um, and so all of a sudden when the teams have losing records going into Christmas, it's really not that exciting of a game because Trey Young's not even there. So that, that's kind of my point. Is I think they're just kind of 
grasping for straws um, compared to the 90s where we every direction you turned, there was a, a huge rivalry. I think the league now relies a lot more on trying to have Kevin Durant face off against LeBron or Chris Paul face off against Steph Curry. They're more player-rooted rivalries than really team because guys switch teams too much. Um, and the guys team up together so often now that there really isn't much in the way of just having a rooted rivalry. So I, I, I'd love to see a little bit more physicality, but I think that today's game is so much more spaced out and so much more rooted in skill and athleticism. And, again, I would say that the Knicks are a huge reason for that because the league over the course of the Knicks' time, you know, partly because Charles Oakley one season had more flagrant fouls by himself than 15 teams did, um, <laughs> that the league had to change flagrant foul rules and, and, you know, say eventually we're going to suspend you if you have too many flagrants. They changed hand-checking, which was pretty heavily tied to Derek Harper to the point where when they would show videos of what they were no longer going to allow, Derek Harper was the first person that they featured on those videos for the first two minutes of them to show teams what you couldn't do anymore. They were essentially poster children. Yeah. Uh, the fighting rules and, 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 you know, the way that they were no longer going to allow people to leave the bench was because Greg Anthony had come off the bench and sucker punched Kevin Johnson during a fight in street clothes, no less, um, in 93 against the Phoenix Suns. And then in 94, Derek Harper basically suplexed JoJo English during that series against the Bulls right in front of David Stern and his wife. So all these things more or less stemmed from the Knicks uh, and, and the, the league wanting to change those rules. Um, and, and the league doesn't even really shy away from the fact that the Knicks were kind of at the forefront of the things they were trying to change to make the game more about skill and talent and scoring and athleticism than the physical, you know, I think intimidating defense that the Knicks were playing. They wanted to get away from that. A great point brought up by Chris Herring in his wonderful book. Check it out, folks. It's called Blood in the Garden, A Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks. You will enjoy it. Again, thanks for stopping by, Chris. We appreciate it, and uh, we will we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you so much, Bill. You take care. All the best. That's Chris Herring, folks. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Charles Oakley and Chris Herring. My engineer this evening, Trevor Vassal, in for Brian Graves. Thanks for taking care of business, Trevor. See you next on February 20th. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks.